Welcome to the Living Undeterred Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Johnston, and uh, today I'm super, super excited to meet an individual that I think him and I are going to have a lot in common. Um, David Essel is our guest today, and uh, we're going to dive right into it today, David. What I'm going to do is just let you maybe introduce yourself first, um, not spend a lot of time coming from me on that, uh, and then why you think I picked you to be on the show. Um, again, uh, this is David Essel, and he's our guest on the Living Undeterred Podcast. So, David, with that, I'm going to have you go ahead and uh, we'll, we'll start the ball rolling here. Why don't you introduce yourself, a little bit about your background, and uh, I got a whole bunch of stuff here I want to cover with you. <laughs> Jeff, I am so ready. I've been looking forward to this interview now for, for several weeks, and we're going to rock it. You know, I, I began 42 years ago, Jeff. It, I can't believe, you know, when we say time flies, I mean, I just can't even believe I've been in this industry 42 years. It's, it's mind-blowing to me. Started out in sports psychology, health and fitness, working mainly with athletes and health and fitness people. 1990 made this major transition. Honestly, I got really bored in the world of sports only and sports psychology and working with health and fitness people. It, it was great for 10 years. And then all of a sudden, I didn't know what to do. And by chance, I was introduced to a woman that was struggling with her marriage and her attitude and self-esteem. And Jeff, all of a sudden, a whole new career opened up. 1990s when I was introduced to radio uh, for 20, almost 30 years, I hosted a radio show nationally syndicated. And that was a blast. You know, so we, we've had a really great life. I mean, I've gone through a lot of struggles, um, 30 years of serious addiction that I had to overcome, right. uh, su suicidal attempt in 1990. Uh, you know, so my life hasn't been perfect. And, and I add those last two things, Jeff, because a lot of times, you know, I didn't even mention we have 11 books out, right? Five yeah. number one bestsellers. But people have a tendency to look at all those accolades and forget that my struggles are every one of your audience struggles, Jeff. My struggles still continue today. You know, like with everything going on, I have to make sure that I'm putting the effort, the time on a daily basis into my mind, into my body, into my spirit. Uh, I have a coach. I have a counselor, hmm. you know, to keep my track record moving forward in a really good way. So, you know, in a nutshell, Jeff, as a counselor, uh, author, minister, coach, you name it, the whole nine yards, the whole purpose of my existence is doing what you and I are doing, giving people hope. Yeah, that's awesome, David. And I know when, when Doug Wagner I got off the phone with you. He called me immediately. He said, "Hey, you got to get David on because you guys are so similar." And um, you know, I, I looked at your all your stuff online, and uh, I guess the first thing is, what's the positive thinking movement? Before you answer that, um, when I developed this living undeterred mindset, uh, I, I think that's a very similar philosophy that I'm trying to to live myself, and then try to have that permeate over to people that I know in my life. So, what is positive thinking uh, movement? It seems to me very similar to what I'm trying to do. Yeah, well, you know, there's there's a couple different sides of the positive thinking movement. There's the realistic side, which I preach now. And then mm -hmm. there's the unrealistic side, which I preached from 1980 to 1996. And Jeff, I always say this on interviews. I am so sorry for misleading anyone at all from 1980 to 1996 because <laughs> I taught the law of attraction, which is mainly a bunch of nonsense. And I taught it. And that's part of the positive thinking movement that's totally unrealistic. We are teaching people the worst way to be successful with the law of attraction in the way that I describe it right now. And the way that I was taught in 1980 is whatever you desire, 
put out into this universe, whatever the universe is. <laughs> I still don't know what quite this universe right. is, but we all use the word. So you take your thoughts and you put it into the universe. And according to the law of attraction and the most powerful teachers of it, it has to respond in kind. Hmm. Which means if you put a thought on that you want a brand new Mercedes Friday, it must respond. That's what the teachers say. It must wow. respond. Now, if anyone has any common sense at all, and I did not from 1980 to 1996, I was a parrot, Jeff. I was just preaching what my gurus preached to me. It right. never worked, you know, and, and here's a great example of how it didn't work. And I'll tell you who exposed my fallacy and my false belief system was none other than one of the most powerful men that have ever walked this earth in the world of spirituality, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, hmm. who's the founder of Transcendental Meditation yeah, that the Beatles took worldwide in 1960. Yep. They went nuts. And, and yep. the, the two remaining Beatles today still promote Transcendental Meditation. But, you know, he exposed it as a lie. And this is what, what happened. We were talking off air during the interview and he said, boy, you really love affirmations and positive thinking. And I said, Maharishi, it's everything to me. And so he said, why don't you tell me one of your affirmations? I said, oh, I'll tell you the one I've said for 17 years. I am David Essel, a child of God, happy, healthy and sober today. And he says, are all of those points true? Are they all accurate? And I lied, Jeff. Right. I lied to Maharishi. And I said, yes, they're all true. And he said, good. He goes, as long as the affirmations you're putting out into the world are factual or close to factual, then use them. But if you're ever repeating something that isn't in your life right now, you are lying to yourself, David. You are out of integrity. Jeff, this blew my mind. I never thought, you know, because I was teaching people to have affirmations like I am a millionaire today. Right. I earn a million dollars a year. I mean, I was teaching this nonsense. No one was making a million dollars a year. No one right. was making a million dollars in a day, you know? And so he is the one that radically changed the positive thinking movement from the old, well, it's still here, unfortunately, the law of attraction and the secret and all that stuff. Yep, the secret. You know, yeah. And, I'll, and, and let me make this point. If it was a law, you know, the law of gravity is pretty easy to prove. You know, you hold up a penny, you drop it, open your hand, it falls to the floor. That's the law of gravity. It will happen every time you hold a penny and let it go. Unless you're on Mars or something, it's going to happen. Unless right. some gravitational pull changes in the earth. But ever since the beginning, pretty much you pick up something, you open your hand, it falls. That can be proven 100 out of 100 times. If the law of attraction was accurate, then every person who said, I earn a million dollars today, would, should be able to have that happen. It shouldn't just be every once in a while. Right. And, and if it does happen, Jeff, it's more likely to be a miracle than your powerful positive affirmation that went out into the universe and came back in kind. You know, so, so what we say with the new positive thinking movement is this, and Jenny McCarthy, bless her heart, Jeff, She's the one that really took our, our work in this direction to the stratosphere. When we came out with our book, Positive Thinking Will Never Change Your Life, but this book will, I had my whole team saying to me, you know, David, your career could be over. You might be looking at starting a new career. You're going against this massive industry that believes that whatever you think should just appear in your life. Right. But the funniest thing that happened, Jeff, was but by me standing up and speaking the truth, about success, you know, like 
like, and I even gave examples with Jenny McCarthy. I said, how many bodybuilders do you know created a vision board, said powerful affirmations in their bedroom every day, and walked on stage six months later and won a bodybuilding contest? None. I mean, I'm curious. You know, does anyone know yeah. of anyone? How many doctors have created a vision board when they were 18, said affirmations until they were 28, and got a medical degree? Right. You know, so we, we say... The new positive thinking movement, thanks to Jenny McCarthy, is this. We create in the morning one hour. We set aside the first hour of the day. No social media, no looking at your phone, no looking at a TV, no stock reports, no nothing for one hour. And you apply gratitude, affirmations, journaling, prayer, meditation, reading spiritual books, reading motivational. The first hour. We believe, Jeff, is the most important hour of the day to put all of your effort into the positive mindset to get yourself ready for the day. But here's the greatest thing in the world. If you start your day like that, you don't have to go back at noon and repeat an affirmation and at four and at eight mm -hmm. and at 12. You know, you're done. Now you just go and do what a lot of people don't want to do. And that is the hard work to be successful. I'm sitting here thinking, I, I know exactly why Doug wanted me to get you on, on the Living Undeterred podcast, because you and I have so many similar uh, ways that we look at things. And, and I don't know how much you know about my story, but I'll give you a quick synopsis of kind of where this came from for me. Um, four years ago, uh, 50 years old, on top of the world, thriving investment business, happily married, three boys. Um, and then at 6.30 in the morning on 10-4-16, I get a call that they found my oldest son dead from a heroin overdose in a hotel room. Um, heroin laced with fentanyl. And yeah. that moment, uh, I was given an opportunity to become a better man, a, a better, a better father, a, a better human. And I didn't look at it as a something taken away from me. I looked at it more as, as an opportunity for me to see what I've been talking about and practicing my whole life. And so what it did is just it, it propelled me after some time. I went straight downhill for about a year and uh I was so far downhill that when I laid on my back and looked out of the abyss, there was nothing below me. I was already on the bottom. Um, and it was a very tough time for me. And I did a lot of, uh, uh, you know, looking inwards and looking outwards. And um, I drank a lot and I watched my marriage begin to crumble. And what I did is I went back to some things that I had learned from all the way back in college. And one of them specifically was Stoicism, uh, the Stoic philosophy. And I'm a big believer in, in that mindset, which I think there's a lot of similarities to it, what this positive thinking movement is about. And so this journey I'm on, David, now is I, I wrote a book. I started the nonprofit, which is so funny because I, I looked at your information for the last couple of days online and you talk about choices and accountability all the time. And I'm like, this is crazy. My, the name of my nonprofit is called The Choices Network, which is simply <laughs> I know it's just crazy how you and I are so similar. I mean, it's 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 called The Choices Network because I didn't want to be out there preaching to people. Don't drink. Don't smoke. Don't do drugs. Don't do this. Don't don't don't. I mean, there's enough people to do that. What I wanted to do is I wanted to arm people with enough confidence that they could make good decisions when confronted with those situations where they had to. And so the Choices Network for me is primarily geared at the age of first use for adolescents, which is 14 in the United States. And then also to the parents, how they can have these difficult conversations about everything from sex, drugs, you know, whatever it is that we tend to hold inside, you know, make these more uh, comfortable topics that we can discuss. So one thing that I want to talk about is gratitude. Um, you know, hey, I, wait a minute. Wait, Jeff. Jeff, wait yeah. a second. 
If there's anything I can do to help that choice movement, let me know or let TJ, my publicist, know. I am so blown away with what you're saying. We are so in alignment. It's crazy. You know, it's just crazy. When you're telling me this, that I, if I can do anything, let me know. Well, that would be awesome. And again, there's there's something, like I said, Doug, Doug called me immediately and he said, you got to talk to Dave. So there's a reason why you and I are talking. But this concept of, and again, so many things. I cannot wait to get your books and I'm going to start... I have a stack this high, and I'm going to move yours up towards the top. Um, I want to ask you before we get done today, what's the number one book you think I should start with that, that, that you, you have written? But something called um, negative visualization is a concept the Stoics have used, and I use it in my daily practice, along with meditation and, and obsessively reading all these things. And it's where it's the concept, and I'm sure you know what this is, David, where you, where you have immediate gratitude in the situation that you're in, and you're reflecting back with with the with a pause in that this may be the last moment that this may ever happen. So even you and I speaking, I mean, this could be the last moment you and I ever speak. So I have a lot of gratitude and appreciation for this moment. And, and burying a child, David, you know, at the age of 23, boy, if I haven't learned to appreciate living in the moment, I don't know what other slap in the face would, would make me do that. I gave up alcohol. I'll take that back. I choose not to drink. I don't tell myself I gave up alcohol. That makes it sound like I've sacrificed something. <laughs> uh, stopping drinking is no sacrifice. Um, not at all. So, so I choose not to drink alcohol, and I simply choose today. I don't go any further than tomorrow or yesterday, and that's how I, I deal with um, not drinking. But this this gratitude thing, I, I see it just you know pouring out of all your writings, all the blogs I saw I, uh, last night online. I'm sure your books are going to just be full of love and appreciation and gratitude. So. Spend a few minutes on on your thoughts on gratitude and kind of how that's helped you uh, get through your uh, challenges that you had um, to get you where you are today. Well, you said something incredibly important, and I've got to give Eckhart Tolle a shout out right now. You know, one of the most powerful books ever written about gratitude is The Power of Now. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's it for people that truly want to get out of this uh, fantastical thinking, secret law of attraction, nonsensical crap. You know, we need reality, Jeff. And uh, and 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 Eckhart Tolle gives us a, a boatload of reality just with that one book about, you know, if you're in the moment and you have gratitude for the moment and then you're in the next moment and you have gratitude for that moment, you don't have to forecast ahead and say, you know, I'll be really happy when because we all know that that's going to self-sabotage because mm -hmm. when we hit X, it's never freaking enough, Jeff. You know, right. we, we, we have to have Y, then we have to have Z, and then, you know, we're, we're never freaking satisfied. But if we can stay here now, and as you just said, this might be the last time we talk. So let's really enjoy the conversation, right? Yep. Like, like let's, really, let's really connect with each other from the heart level, you know, not just the mind level. Like, let's open up those hearts and be grateful for this moment that you and I have. And then when this moment is over, let's look for the next thing to be grateful for, and then the very next thing. But... I don't mean projecting ahead. You know, we we teach this thing called addiction to the future, which most of us live in, you know, mm -hmm. that everything is going to be great when the kids leave, you know, my wife leaves, my husband leaves, blah, blah, blah. Um, or when I get married or when I get my degree. And, you know, I played that game like most of us is that when I make X amount of money, oh, my God, you know, but then when I reached that, I needed more. And and so if we could just look at our lives and this is really hard because it goes against the movements I'm talking about. If you can strip naked in front of a, a, a mirror and you're 150, 200, 300 pounds overweight, just do it and stare. 
until you be comfortable to accept the reality of what's in the mirror. Open up your bank accounts. Look at all the money you have or don't have. Look at them and stare. Don't put your head in the freaking sand. Don't don't not look at what you know is going on in your life. Look at and 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 become comfortable with this is what I have. Now, you know, I have clients that make ten million dollars a year, Jeff, that are not satisfied. Absolutely. And I have clients that make less than twenty thousand a year that are happier than pigs and whatever. You know, right. so you know, so much of it is is, you know, can we get grounded in this moment, in this day? We have, Jeff, right now, we've, well, I mean, 50% of our work has always been relationships. It's probably up to 70% right now. Right. Um, is it pandemic related only? No. Is it partially pandemic related? Yes. Um, but here's what we tell people. When people say, well, the only reason my relationship is in struggle is because of the pandemic, I can always prove that's a lie. Because what the pandemic has done is that it has exposed resentments that we haven't wanted to deal with for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. That's what the pandemic has done. It hasn't created additional issues within a marriage. It's just allowed those that have always been there to come to the surface. So Hmm. when we talk about gratitude, what if we said, holy crap, I'm listening to David and Jeff and I'm slowing down and I'm realizing that the pandemic isn't the cause. I am. Hmm. That the pandemic isn't the cause of dysfunction in our relationship. My wife and I are the cause. Like, that might seem negative, but now I want to be grateful that I found the origin and I'm quitting making excuses. Now, let's go get help. So to me, that's living in the moment and it's having gratitude, not just for the great stuff that are going on. But, you know, when we deal with people with anxiety or depression, we say, let's go find the origin. Let's not just give you a bunch of tools to to cover it up. Let's go into the heart of the matter. And we usually find a lot of issues, Jeff, if not all in psychotherapy, begin between zero and 18. Modeling mom and dad, modeling grandma and grandpa that maybe not have good modeling habits for us to be modeling. But from zero to 18, we don't have a choice. We're, we're, We're being inundated on the subconscious mind. And if you're raised in an environment where mom or dad are always anxious, you pick up that trait. So I'll take a client back and I'll say, you know, how long have you been struggling with anxiety for? My whole life. Ooh, this is a good point now. Okay, let's go back and see who was it? Mom, dad, sis, brother, aunt, uncle, cousins that modeled anxiety in life. And we always find out one, two, three or four people. Now, I look at that as a great uh, a gratitude statement, Jeff. Mm-hmm. We found the origin. Now, logically... We can be at peace to see where the origin of my dysfunctional anxiety began and we can start to heal. Does all that make sense? It, it does. And I was going to, th- you just actually had a perfect segue because I wanted to ask you a question and I kind of have my own response, but I want to hear it from, from an expert. Um, do you see a issue? And I think one of the problems is kind of what, what people are pursuing, but do you see a, an issue with um, the difference between happiness and peace? Um, what's your, what's your thoughts on, on maybe the illusion, what, what people are chasing and then what they should be trying to achieve in their life? You know, this, from a motivational speaker, I'm going to say something, Jeff, that you know, we need to be going after peace, brother. Um, I agree. Happiness. I agree. Yeah. Happiness is too, too elusive. Um, you have more control to create inner peace in your life than you could ever believe. And from the spring of inner peace comes creativity, great decision-making, compassion, love, understanding, 
forgiveness. You know, when, when you're in that place of peace, all of those attributes I just mentioned can be worked on and worked through. Happiness is great, but to me, it's a byproduct of inner peace. Hmm. And because, you know, you, I, I don't really think it's possible to say happiness creates inner peace. Happiness can be fleeting. Inner peace Perfect. can be fleeting yeah. until you put the time and effort into a daily basis. Just like I said, the first thing every morning, you know, like that will create a sense of peace. No media, no music, no stock market, no presidential nonsense, no pandemic insanity nothing but you and God or you and your higher power or you and a great book on motivation by Napoleon Hill or, you know, you doing journaling from the day before or you meditating or you drawing art or whatever it is, that first hour will bring that sense of peace and then happiness can follow once we've mastered peace, Jeff. I, yeah, I think that's perfect. And you, you almost verbatim, I always explain happiness as a fleeting emotive state. And it's, it's just a period of time, immediate, uh, you know, you get a car or you get a new shirt or you, you know, get a phone or something, you have happiness. But we're trying to, at least I am in my life, trying to achieve some element of peace in my life. And I do feel, you know, going through a divorce and losing a child and all these other things that, that ironically or somehow heroically, I guess, I've reached a point where I'm at, I'm at very uh, good peace in my life right now. I'm very, I'm in a very good place that I've been probably in the last four years, but I wanted to ask you, David, what you thought, and again, I, I write quite a bit on uh, negative habits versus negative emotions, and that um, too, far too often we as a society tell people, you know, we need to eliminate negative emotions. And I'm like, no, no, we don't. I think envy and jealousy can be great impetuses for starting a business, for losing weight so you look better compared to your peer group. I mean, um, you know... Lots of time, negative emotions can become the beginning of something great. Negative habits, I think, David, is where you and I would hang our hats. Those are what we have to avoid. Drinking, smoking, lying, cheating, stealing, all the, the negative, uh, the unhealthy eating, um, poisoning your mind with toxicity on TV. Um, what's your thoughts on negative habits versus negative emotions? Well, we have an article coming out in a week. So this is hilarious that we're talking about this, Jeff. And it's just one more connection we have outside of the physical world. I'll tell you that. Mm -hmm. um, so we wrote an article saying it's time to embrace your negative emotions and negative habits. Awesome. awesome. Okay. So what we're saying is when we move in, you know, my, my counseling practice, as you can probably tell right now, is all about reality. You know, I'm in 1996 when Maharishi blew my mind and showed me that positive thinking is not everything. And there's a hell of a lot more to life than just trying to think positively. You know, and the law of attraction says something else too that really irritates me. If you ever have a negative thought, you're doing something wrong. Hmm. Wow. It's like, are you freaking kidding me? So this goes right into what we're talking about. What we teach our clients are, we wanna write about and embrace every negative emotion that is currently or in the very near past, meaning the last 30 days, interfering with our life, interfering with our inner peace. We wanna write about every negative emotion, our jealousies, our insecurities, mm -hmm. our guilt, our shame, our low self-confidence, low self-esteem. You know, we, we wanna embrace, I even say embrace those suckers, Jeff. And then when we go to the habits, we say the same thing. Write down that you are 
an alcoholic or alcoholic dependent or you drink, if you don't have the balls to call yourself an alcoholic and you are one, just say, I drink too much for God's sake. Okay. Mm -hmm. So a lot, yeah. a lot of people are so afraid of being honest, but right. this is what happens. What we're trying to do in our work is we're trying to marry the conscious mind of intent with the subconscious mind of past patterning. Mm -hmm. So when I was an alcoholic and a cocaine addict for 30 years, I had put into my subconscious mind that this is the way successful men relax. I deserve mm -hmm. it. I put in 12 hour mm -hmm. days. This is, and I surrounded myself with successful men on some level successful that also drank and partied and everything else, right? The only way I was able to get out of that was to admit the reality that I was trying to escape life every night at 8.01 when my last counseling session ended, I needed to run away. I was a pussy, Jeff, and right. I don't mind calling myself a pussy. Yep. You know, I didn't want to, and here's the wild, most bizarre, oxymoronic thing I can say. I'm a freaking counselor, and right. I wanted to <laughs> run away, and I successfully ran away from my emotions for many years, right? But right. when I sat and wrote about how much I drank, what the negative aspects were, impatience, irritability, arguments, hangovers, fatigue, you know, when I started to write and embrace the quote unquote negative side, it was one of the impetuses that put me into recovery. Right. Exactly. And now, exactly. Right, Jeff. And, and, and now I, you know, I, I liked what you said earlier. I am David Essel. I'm not David Essel, a former alcoholic. I'm not David Essel in recovery. I'm not David Essel of anything. I am simply David Essel. I don't attach a past tagline to myself. Right. And, exactly. and the other thing, Jeff, is that now this is just my personal opinion. I have a lot of personal opinions about a lot of things that people don't agree with, and that's totally fine. But I don't think we should ever be talking about how many years we're clean. Man, I don't think what, we should. should I, I'm actually just absolutely amazed uh, where you're going with this because I haven't heard anyone else talk about the same thing. And I, I wrote a whole blog on this, and I, I used the analogy that um, you know, I see people on social media posting how many days they're sober and all, all these things where they're spending so much time in that world, the sober world, that at some point it almost becomes an, uh, the opposite of a self-fulfilling prophecy. It drags you in back into the abyss. So I don't run, I don't tell people I'm sober. I don't tell how many days I've not had a drink. I just simply say I choose not to drink today. And, and I'd like to do with the time we have limited because I know you, you're up against the clock today, David, and this is awesome because I... I got to get you back on as a guest, but I wanted to definitely get your thoughts on addiction, disease, or choice, because I have spent thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of hours uh, researching this, thinking about it, writing, and I, I think to me, initially, it's a framing issue. It's the way we frame the question, um, and maybe it should be uh, addiction, it's a disease and a choice as opposed to is it a disease or a choice? What's your thoughts on this? I kind of already know where you kind of lay your, you know, where, where you lay your claim on this this argument, but, and I know you and I are, are on the same side of the fence on this, but tell me what you think about disease, uh, a choice or addiction, or uh, I'm sorry, addiction, choice or a disease? Yeah, I, I go 100% choice. Um, now, I'm going to say that there is, there could be a genetic component of it, but that's not what causes addiction. And this is the most important exactly. point I want to make. When I say that genetics has nothing to do with the cause of addiction, what that means is your genes do not drive you to the bar and sit you down and open your mouth and make you drink. Your genes don't do a damn thing. 
All the, hmm. the creation of every addiction is coming from the same space. We are trying to run from reality or we're trying to run into acceptance. Running into acceptance is peer pressure. At 12 years of age, that's how I started drinking, is that I wanted to hang out with the 16-year-old kids on the beach. The only time I could at night was if I drank with them. If I didn't drink, I couldn't be part of their clique. So that's what started it. But Jeff, I was an angry kid. My whole life, I was an angry kid. So the peer pressure was an outlet for my anger. And, and it has nothing to do with genetics. Now, the genetic link is this. I have, we have a huge history of alcoholism in my family that is all started by choice. But my aunt died a horrific death of wet brain. It is one of the nastiest things in the world to experience due to alcoholism, severe alcoholism. Right. Now, so what happens is if you have the gene, and I know I have the gene, there's no doubt in my mind, I've proved it for 30 years. <laughs> I don't even need to be tested. I know I have it. The gene says once you have X amount of drinks, it's not enough. For some people, it's one. You've got to have 10. For other people, you can have three and you've got to have 20. That's where the gene can be activated. And if you have the genome and it was found in 2000, in 2000s, when they found the genome for alcoholism, we could say that once you consume it, choice, it could be activated, genetics. So mm. if you don't consume it, it can't be activated. And the other thing we say about disease is this, Jeff, and I think this really clarifies everything. Millions of people every year get clean and sober for life without any medical intervention at all. If it was a genetically caused disease, if it was a genetic, you would have to have medical intervention, cystic fibrosis, multiple sclerosis, cancer. You have to have medical intervention. Addiction, no. You have to stop, get help, follow a program to get sober. But it has nothing to do with med medicine which to me says it has nothing to do with the gene is the problem. The inability to have healthy coping mechanisms for the emotions in life is the key to long-term freedom. And we're talking about learning how to deal with boredom without substances or behaviors right. that are addiction. Right. Excitement without having to have it higher. Shame, guilt, anger, rage, resentment, jealousy, envy, all of these things, peer pressure, will create the person who what we call is non-emotionally regulated to try to find a way to run away from the reality of the emotion they don't want to feel. Hmm. And we know that millions of people couldn't heal with simple programs if it if it were truly was a genetic disease. Well, you're I mean you're spot on. I I've I've said for years that um, just because you have a predisposition to uh, to drink doesn't mean you're predetermined to drink. Um, and, and I, I do believe that. And it's, it's, I guess you go back to the difference between, um, an addiction versus substance abuse. And that's probably where I think, I think where we need to spend more time at. I think the problem is the abuse of the substance, not the fact that you may be genetically, you know, pre predisposed to drink and you hit the nail on the head. Um, I may have a gene in my body that says, if I have a drink, you know, bad things are going to happen. Well, then I got to find a way not to have that drink. I mean, the fact that I'm the fact that I'm addicted or, or I'm a diseased, you know, cursed human being doesn't mean I, I, I can't choose not to have 20 beers. I mean, that, that's just um, I don't know. I think you and I are so so on the same path here. And, and I don't have 
a um, an answer for those people struggling other than keep researching, keep learning. There are people like David Essel out there and Jeff Johnston that are more choice advocates. Uh, I don't have any medical background, no psychological background, clinical uh, studies, anything like that. I, what I have is life experiences. I have eight year of a downward spiral of a teenage addicted son that started with Adderall, David. My son yeah. was uh, diagnosed with ADD. They put a freaking label on his forehead. I have ADD. You have ADD. I can just tell by meeting you, you have ADD. Um, but somehow, I didn't look at it as a curse. To me, it was superhuman power that I was given, and I never looked at it as a curse. My son felt he was cursed uh, from the get-go, abused Adderall, alcohol, marijuana, cocaine, heroin, death. Very you know, predictable process yep. there. Um, yep. So I'm, I'm like, okay, how do I find a way to discover something out there that I don't know yet that I can learn that the next kid sitting in a hotel room that has a needle looking at his arm says, hey, this is a really bad, freaking stupid decision. How can I, how can I come up with, with something that can help kids make that decision? Or maybe, Dave, I'm, I'm sure you'd agree, it starts way before that. It starts way before that, when they're oh, 14. Jeff- You know, okay. so when I look back at the real origin of my addiction, it was eight years of age. Uh, I I mentioned I had a real anger temper problem when I was a child. Um, Zero to 18. I was hell on my family. Uh, Hmm. But at eight years of age, because I like my mom and dad didn't know how to allow me to express who David was. You know, I was different than my brother, different than my sister, very different than both of them. I love them all, but I was just an extremely different child. And my parents had no clue of what to do with this hypersensitive child. So at eight years of age, when I would get really angry and they didn't know how to allow me to express my anger or my sadness or my insecurity, I would go downstairs. We lived in upstate New York. My mom would bottle um, jams. And I found that if I eat a half a bottle of jam, that I would calm down. And so my first rule or, or, or experience with addiction was sugar and it worked wow. perfectly. You know, it, it worked so well, Jeff, that I was in the pantry a lot. And, um, uh, yeah, you know, and then, at, and then at 12, you know, I found the same relief with alcohol. Sugar and alcohol interact very similarly in the brain, which is why a lot of people, when they stop drinking, they become sugar addicts um, or caffeine addicts or nicotine addicts because the interaction in the brain is very similar with all of those substances. It's interesting, again, talking about the, the choice um, uh, opportunity that we're all given, is I've told my, my remaining two sons, I have three boys, I have two with me, so from that standpoint, I'm fortunate. But I always said choices precede consequences. And I guess what I'm trying to teach my, my, two, my two boys, and they're, they're rock stars, Dave, if you met them, uh, you would be absolutely amazed. I'm going to send you out a copy of my book that I wrote. Uh, awesome. would have been my son's 27th birthday. It's called This One's For You, An Inspirational Journey Through Addiction, Death, and Meaning. And in the book, I talk about the journey we went through the day from when Seth died and then preceding all the choices that he made up into his incarceration. He was in prison for a while. All the journey we had as a, as a, as a family and how things started to fall apart, all because of choices that he made. And again, I'm not blaming him because I had my own choices uh, that I had to, I had to subscribe to, but this whole thing's been quite the journey. And it seems like each week, each day I'm meeting people as, as you are that either are complete opposites to the way I've chosen to live my life. In other words, they're, they're self-destructive, they're alcoholics, they're negative, they're angry. Or I meet people like David Essel, who has plenty of reasons 
to be angry, to be depressed, to be upset, but you've chosen, like I have, to take a different, uh, to different, a different road. And ironically, there's a chapter in my book called Two Roads, and it's the day my son died. I sat my two boys down on the couch when they got home from school, and I said, Roman and Ian, I have really bad news for you. Your older brother's dead. And I, my dad's a retired doctor, and he said, Jeff, after you tell him, shut your mouth, stop talking. So I told him that their brother died, and I stopped. And my, old, my middle son, Ian, said, how'd he die, Dad? Drugs? And I said, yeah, drugs. And then just David, I don't know what happened, but something popped in my head. I said, boys, we have two roads to take. We have one road of anger, despair, and hatred, and we're going to become alcoholics and addicts ourselves. Or we have a road of inspiration and motivation, and this could be the single greatest event in our lives and for the people around us that we care about. I'm on the second road. You boys can join me. Where that came from, I have no freaking idea. I love it. And it literally rolled off my tongue verbatim like that. I didn't rehearse it. I didn't practice it. But... And that, I tell you what, my two boys took that road, and they're on that road with me. And Beautiful. Um, and uh, four months ago, my, my youngest son came out as gay. And talk about a beautiful journey I'm on with him. He's 17, and he's got the courage to come yeah. to Dad and trust yeah. me with this. And yeah. we actually taped a blog that we're going to be posting um, soon. Uh, the whole episode's on, on having these difficult conversations with kids. Before we end, you talked about codependency. Man, um, I absolutely loved your angle on codependency when you even talked about coming out of the closet. And, and I thought, wow, I thought of my son at the, when the moment you said that. Because not, not many people know. I mean, there's probably less than you know, 20 people in my life that know that my youngest son is gay. And he's kind of kept this inside for six or seven months. But you said codependency. Tell my listeners what that means in English. <laughs> uh, how can that help us understand addictions, mental health, substance abuse. And it seems to me you think that's the root of all evil when it comes to um, addictive uh, personality traits. You know, Jeff, in my opinion, it's the largest addiction in the world that no one talks about. It's the largest addiction in the world that you can't see. There's no physical signs. There's no substance. There's no money draining out of the bank account. It is one of the most difficult uh, addictions to be able to first take a look at and to say, hey, I, I want to open up the doorway to talk to you about an addiction you have you may not know about. You know, it's 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 so wild. I mean, we wrote a book, Love and Relationship Secrets, that everyone needs to know. And the whole book is about codependency with uh, friends, family, co-workers, ourselves, our partners, the whole freaking book. In 2002, we labeled codependency as the largest addiction in the world. The difficulty in describing it is that codependency has 2,000 freaking spokes. You have the enabler, you know, who allows their husband or wife to continue to drink and drives them to the bar so that they don't have to get in trouble by driving themselves. That's an enabler. That's codependent. We have the dominant the one that doesn't listen to their partner, won't listen to their partner. And they've created a codependent relationship. The silent one feels that the dominant one must know because they're so overpowering, totally unhealthy. We have the passive aggressive person, the individual that smiles to your face and then behind your back is talking about you or behind your back has agreed to do something and then they don't. So many spokes to it. It's amazing. But how codependency is started, just like addiction, because it is an addiction, is low self-confidence and low self-esteem. Right. So the codependent wants to please everyone. 
You know, like that's a huge sign that's going to destroy you. I was a codependent. You know, I had the worst a case of codependency in intimate relationships, Jeff, that as a counselor, I didn't even know about. In 1997, another counselor that lived by me called me one day and she said, hey, I've got some issues in my relationship. I'm wondering if you could help me and I'll help you in return. Let's commit a year, David. Let's work with each other's issues for a year and you'll help me and my husband and I'll help you and your girlfriend. I said, fantastic. Within 30 days, she said, time out, David. I've been taking notes of these sessions and I just have to tell you something and I know you're going to disagree and I know you may end working with me. You are by far the most codependent man in intimate relationships I have ever met. <laughs> now, back in 97, Jeff, the only book we had on codependency was Codependent No More by Melody Beatty, which was a great book, but it only talked about enabling, being married mm. to an alcoholic husband. It didn't talk about the white knight syndrome. It didn't talk about passive aggressive behavior. It didn't. So I, when she said I was the most, you know, a, a codependent man in intimate relationships, I go, you are insane. I'm a, you know, I'm this, I'm that. You know how we get defensive? Oh, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> I'm all these things, you know, and, <clears throat> and I've been a counselor longer than you. How the hell can you call me out? And then, Jeff, she went through and showed me every relationship I had been in up to that time had been with someone who needed me or something from me, financial support. They didn't know how to raise children. They were having troubles with their ex-husband. They were having troubles with their family. You know, they were having troubles with their career. They were having troubles with whatever it might be. And I was the savior. And when she showed me that through her notes, that every woman that I was with had to be saved. She looked at me and she said, they should all be clients paying you. You shouldn't be dating them. <laughs> because, Jeff, every relationship ended in resentment. Yeah. I was the savior. I expected something for my greatness. They would be appreciative for a short period of time. But then I wanted something more that they didn't want to give, whatever that might be. Time, sex, who knows? Maybe I wanted them to start making meals for me because I had saved them from this horrendous position. Who knows? But it right. was something with everyone. And it ended up being resentment at the end of the relationship. So, you know, a codependency is sneaky. You know, it's it's when we go to work and we stand around you know, for those people who actually have offices that they go to and someone tells an inappropriate joke and you laugh. Right. That's codependency. Right, right, right. See, the independent person would just walk away from a group of people telling, in, you know, jokes that are, are insensitive. An independent person would walk away from someone who's had too much to drink. They may call him a cab, but they're not going to hang out with some slobbering drunk just because they're quote unquote friends. Mm -hmm. You know, so the independent person a lot of times will find themselves when they make the switch from codependency, Jeff, to independency, that they lose their core following, their core friends, mm -hmm. because they start to see that they've surrounded themselves with other codependent people. No one's healthy, no one's happy. And, you know, when you said something earlier about, you know, when do we start teaching these things? And, you know, to me, it's elementary school. Yeah. Um, we, yep. we start teaching kids what peer pressure is and how to stand up against it. We teach kids how not to be pulled into situations um, that are going to be negative emotionally, mentally, physically, financially, whatever it might be. It starts in elementary school. We've got to give them that platform of strength. You said something important, and this is in the world of independence versus codependence. It's a freaking choice. Yeah. You can want everyone to like you, everyone to love you. You know, and that was one of my issues too. You know, I, it, you know, it's, it's so, I, I'm, I'm so grateful to be able to share my, my, my downfalls, 
because yeah. it's important to. A lot of what I did for years, Jeff, was to get attention. I was insecure. So I needed as much attention as I can get. And if I look at my life now, you know, we've pared back, we've cut down. I have a staff of five versus 10. We've stopped chasing the Holy Grail. Yeah. You know, like my life is so much calmer. But before 1997, it was all about making more money to impress more people, to have a yeah. nicer car, a bigger yeah. house on the beach, right? That's all yeah. codependency. Right. I was doing it to be liked, to be loved, to be admired. And now I move into a tiny little home. I don't care. Yeah. You know, someone says, Jesus, you, you know, you've written 11 books, five bestsellers, and you live here. Yeah. And I love it. <laughs> Man, you I, and I are so, you and I are so, so similar. I'm in the investment business. So I own a wealth management firm. Believe me, I got into everything trying to impress people, uh, the, the big house, all that stuff. Uh, and then when my son died and, and I got separated two years later, I downsized everything. Everything in my life is smaller and I am, I'm at more peace in my life with less things. And one thing that I, I, I wanted to ask you, Dave, um, and I really admire your courage or you're used to it at this point in, in being able to talk about this. And I, we all call that vulnerability and it's awesome. People compliment me. They pat me on the back. Hey, Jeff, you know, you talk about your compulsive gambling problems. You talk about your drinking problems, your separation, your death of a child. You talk about blah, blah, blah. And I suddenly realized that, hey, you know what? I'm becoming addicted to being vulnerable. And you talked about the addiction to chaos and drama on one of your uh, videos I watched last night. Yeah. I thought, wow, I wrote a whole blog called My Addiction to Vulnerability. And it was the idea that I'm creating this internal Frankenstein where I'm intrigued by creating this this being, this thing, unaware that it has the ability to devour me like, like, like Frankenstein could become. And yeah. I reached a point about six months ago, Dave, where I almost didn't didn't start some of these projects because I was afraid that in doing so, in allowing people like you into my life, the affirmation I got, the the support I got was great, but it kept me in the abyss longer. And now I understand that that's not true. That's just a game that I played with myself. And now I'm I'm comfortable with continually being vulnerable. But do you think sometimes when people have a traumatic event? or something that happens to them that even as far as they're trying to get away from it, they're actually intensely drawn to it. I have a phrase I think you can relate to, um, you know, often to get to, to achieve true peace in our life, we have to have moments away from true peace as far as we can be. So here we are, we wanna be happy to get there. Sometimes we have to get as far away from happiness to actually understand what true peace is. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, Jeff, you know, what we're talking about here is we're looking for validation from the outside world for all of our heroic changes in life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, th there's a, a client of mine that every time he spoke would find a way to weave into his story that how his father was murdered. If he was talking about how to make asparagus yeah. soup or he was talking about, you know, his investments or he was talking about his latest 100 mile bike ride, he would find a way to weave it in because he got such an incredible ego producing mm. response from the audience. That's me. So that's me. Yeah. And that becomes an addiction, Jeff. And so what we, you know, we, we teach people how to become life coaches, right? We have a, a program I've taught and certified people since 1996. And one of the things we, we, beat into their heads is you never talk about your successes or failures ever in a session with a client. 
Now, that comes from my therapy hmm. background, my counseling background. You know, we're taught that in our programs that you never talk about yourself and you're going to be tempted to because you overcame the addiction, you overcame the divorce, you overcame the death of your child. So there's this real huge need for us to share how we have succeeded during tough times. But yep. what we tell people is never do it in a session. You can do it in blogs, books, interviews, anywhere else you want to put your story, put your story, but just never do it in a one-on-one -on -one session because at some point the client's going to sit there and go, this is great. I'm paying this guy. I'm paying this woman. And for 20 minutes every session, they're talking about how they've overcome some magical thing that I'm struggling with. It sounds good at first, but it truly is self-sabotage for the client because you're taking their time away to talk about you. But Jeff, in your case and in my case, during interviews, my God, let it rip. Yeah. Because this is what we're here for. We're here to yeah. share hope. We're here to share recovery. We're here to share that you can move through terrible experiences in life. But then when you take it out onto the street, into a networking party, into a birthday party, into a, I was talking to the next door neighbor at the grocery store, you know, blah, blah, blah. All of a sudden, Jeff, we create this identity that is crying for attention. Yeah, I, man, I got so many things. I know, I know you got a, um, actually you have a session coming up. So we have about uh, four or five minutes or so to wrap this up. Does that sound okay for you? Yeah, that's great, Jeff. Okay. Um, one thing I like to say is I have a, a Victor Frankel's book, Man's Search for Meaning, was a very impactful book for me. And he's got a quote called, he says, um, suffering is my opportunity. What I did is I, I took that and rephrased it into my own life. And I came up with pain is unavoidable, but suffering is a choice. And so the concept of chosen suffering is something that's very important to me. And as I go through life, um, I try to teach people that, that are trying to live this living undeterred mindset that you can't avoid what happened to my son. I mean, he, he died. I, I couldn't really avoid a lot of things that have happened to me. However, the length of time I choose to suffer is really up to me. I can compartmentalize it. My moments of grief are very intense, Dave. I mean, very intense, but they're also very, very short. And I had a friend of mine one time say, you know, Jeff, you're just, you're just Teflon. Things just roll off you. And I said, no, you know what? I'm not Teflon. You didn't see me last night at two in the morning in a fetal position on my kitchen floor, you know, crying my, my, my eyes out. And, and that's behind the scenes stuff. And I'm sure David, you and all the other people that listen to your shows and my shows, uh, we all go through those moments of extreme grief. How do we, or how can you help people listening to this learn to compartmentalize that? Or is that even a good thing? I know it's good for me, but is it good for everybody else? Yeah, Jeff, I, you know, anyone that goes through trauma needs to immediately go into a grief program, a grief recovery program. Um, time does not heal grief. You know, we, we've been fed this nonsense that time heals everything. Time does not touch grief. Grief only grows over the years. It doesn't disappear. Mm -hmm. It starts to appear in food addiction, alcohol, nicotine, pot, when we're not actually dealing with it. You know, Jeff, eight weeks ago, my mom died and um, and I and she had a, a 11 months of hell with dementia. It's one of the worst diseases I've ever seen in my life. Sorry I think the that. two diseases I've been close to that are horrendous are ALS and dementia. And, um, yeah, you know, it, she she became not my mom, you know, mm -hmm. and and it really sucked. But we teach a grief recovery course and I put myself immediately into my own course. 
And I just, this is so funny we're having this conversation. I texted my brother yesterday. I said, hey, it's been eight weeks. You know, have you had any like outbursts? Because I had one last night that was out of control. And I said, I'm in my program and I'm really glad I'm feeling it. But, you know, because my brother, my mom and my brother and my dad and sister live in Syracuse, New York. I live in Florida. So my brother was the one there 24 seven, you know, and he replied back this morning and he said, it's just so weird that you said that. He goes, I've been doing great. But last night I had a massive breakdown as well. Yeah. And this is healthy. This is what, you know, the grieving process and we teach in our course, Jeff, is never linear. You know, you you can go through the most perfect grieving process and 10 years down the road, you can be triggered from out of nowhere. I know. But if you don't do the grieving process, if you don't do the hard work now, you will be triggered every couple months for the rest of your life, potentially. So we say find a grief recovery group or find a grief recovery expert, jump into a program. Now, it may be 30 days after your loved one has passed. It might be 60, but never past 60 days should we wait to begin processing the emotion. David, I, I'm so honored that I could talk to you today. I'm, I'm just, um, I'm really excited to get more into your books and and, and, and uh, to follow you and to support what you're doing because, you know, uh, we're all in this together. I, I used to say people think that they're in a canoe out there, you know, going through the, the ocean of, of drama and chaos and stress. We're in a huge freaking boat, man, with billions of people that, that, you know, we all have unique stresses that are all similar, but they're unique to our own story. Uh, let's do this. I'm going to, I know you are, you got to get going, but I want to personally invite you back on the Living Undeterred podcast later this year and get a follow up or maybe circle back on some of the things that we talked about. One thing I wanted to ask you very quickly, if there's, if there's one book to start the David Essel journey that you wrote, what would you recommend my listeners to start with to find out more? Without a doubt, it's our number one bestseller, my first bestseller. And here's something interesting, Jeff. I wrote books for 20 years that never sold hardly anything, but I just kept writing. On the 20th year, our book, Positive Thinking Will Never Change Your Life, but this book, Will, came out, and it went number that. one in the shortest period of time, and it has it, it's the foundation of our work. Um, in the book, I, I asked 11 experts, six New York Times bestselling authors, and five other incredible experts to share their story of how they once bought into that affirmations and vision boards will get them everything in life and they found out it was false. And then mm. what they did to become successful. You're going to love the book and your listeners will too, or our viewers as well, Jeff, because there's two huge stories about dealing with grief that have nothing to do with positive thinking of right. losing children, just like you lost your child. There's two stories identical, Jeff. And what these two women say about covering it up with positive thoughts versus going into the discomfort will blow your mind. We have people that were broke dead broke who are now multimillionaires and they say how they used to read the secret and create vision boards and all it did was create more debt and then when they got out of that and started doing the work they became millionaires so positive thinking will never change your life but this book will that's the number one book to begin with that's awesome i you got me thinking of a term i heard called uh, comfortable discomfort and it was uh, i heard it from nancy barrows who was a guest of mine a few weeks back she was sexually molested for a decade by her grandfather 
and she's trying to now create the narrative or change, move the needle, I guess, for sexual abuse. And she talks about comfortable discomfort and talking about her sexual abuse with a grandfather is a very difficult thing to do, but she needs to be in that arena uh, uh, occasionally to be able to help people. But um, hey, listen, man, I'm going to let you go. Um, you, you are a, uh, an inspiration to me, and uh, I'm going to add you to the list of people that I need to continually have discussions with to keep me, uh, keep me from peering over the ledge occasionally. Um, how, how can people reach you, Dave? What's the best way to reach you? And um, then we'll wrap this up. Yeah, the easiest is the website. Super simple to write down, talkdavid.com. Talkdavid.com. It's all I do, Jeff. 12 hours a day is freaking talk. It's the appropriate title for a website. <laughs> well, you're the man. And I again, thank Doug Wagner for hooking us up. But uh, again, I appreciate everything you're doing. And I look forward to our paths crossing down the road. And as always, I like to end every show. And you have no problem with this. But live undeterred.